Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Marjorie Punnett. I'm Elizabeth Reese. This is Best to the Nest, the podcast that's all about creating happy, healthy, beautiful homes that prepare us to fly. I am very excited this morning. We both took some time to read a wonderful new book called The Beautiful No and Other Tales of Trial, Transcendence, and Transformation. And it happens to be written by a woman that I've known for a very long time, Sherry Salata. She joins us this morning. Good morning, Sherry. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me on. This is very exciting, Sherry. We have just been beside ourselves with joy. You know, Sherry, what's fun is that I have heard tales of Sherry Salata from Marjorie for years and years. Marjorie and I hosted a radio show together at My Talk 1071, and she would really sing your praises about the way that you led people. And she yeah. talked about it all the time. And I think that's a <laughs> testament to the impact that you had and the impact that you have had as a leader. So Marjorie, you got to give everybody the background on Sherry's esteemed career. So Sherry spent 21 years at the Oprah Winfrey show. She started in the promo department, which is where I knew her and worked very hard and eventually became the final executive producer of the Oprah Winfrey show. And then she was off to LA to become the co-president of Oprah's cable channel own. That's a big resume. It's It's so funny to me because I read that and I know that about you, but none of that has anything to do with really how you impacted my life. And I think in turn, the world is finally getting to see the impact that you can have. It's really because of who you are, not what you were doing. It was how you led, even though you were working at the Oprah Winfrey show, but it's how you led and how you were to the people around you. Because when I knew you, you were just a promo producer and not just, I don't mean it that way, but you were still an amazing person to be around. Oh my gosh. I, you, well, I remember in those days and, and, and we were, it was entry level, Marjorie, we were in the basement. <laughs> yes, we were. <laughs> we were in the basement, but I think our big breakthrough was you were my right hand producer on that, that video, that yep. work, Oprah's workout video with Bob Green that we completely transformed into something else. I can't even remember what it was called. But I can't see that's, <laughs> that's when I felt like they, they were like, yeah, yeah, let the promo producer do it. And next thing you know, you know, it was this big, huge um, project. And, and I feel like you and I, with some volunteers, kind of pressed through that together. Yeah, it was, um, it was, it, we, Elizabeth, just so you know, I mean, it was an amazing project because we got to really live on Oprah's farm in Indiana for, I think it was two weeks. Fabulous. Yeah, okay. yeah it was, it was pretty fun. But I mean, this is, this is the, to go back to, I mean, it's funny when I was reading the book because you talk about being being sort of type A and such a hard worker and sort of proving yourself through work. And we are very similar in that way. We were very similar in that way. And it's very similar to Elizabeth. And I think that's what resonated with me as I was reading the book is that idea of pouring everything you have into where you work. 
and what are the consequences of that? Which brings us to really the beginning of the book, which is the reckoning. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to your reckoning? Oh, my goodness, you guys. Well, I, um, I, I'd been having conversations with one of my dearest friends, Nancy Halla, and, and she was kind of having her own reckoning. But, you know, as unconscious, and I have a gift for going unconscious. I can stay unconscious for years at a time about different areas of my life. And um, I'm very, very good at it. And even though I was unconscious in so many ways, I was aware of my unconsciousness. So it was kind of like the, 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 the beating heart of all the things in my life I needed to attend to was getting louder and louder. It, it was like that Edgar Allan Poe thing that, you know, right under the floorboard, the, the heart is beating, the heart is beating. And, yeah. and, and, you know, really the truth is I, I, I wanted a dream come true life. I didn't just want a dream come true career. Um, even though I had all through my twenties had been chasing for, you know, what is that dream come true career? How will I be significant? Where can I get that validation, that sense of achievement and accomplishment? And it's interesting now in the, in this middle time, this middle of life to look back and say, Oh, I would have been such a great advisor for myself. Gosh, darn it. When you think about that, 21 years at the Oprah Winfrey Show, and it is an am- it is an amazing career. I mean, we would keep in touch sort of loosely over the years, but I could always sort of know, it was hard not to know where you were because you were out, you were very public, especially in the last season where they did the reality show about the staff <laughs> at the Oprah Winfrey Show. So I could kind of always tangentially know where you were. And it looked really, really fun, even though these are 16-hour days. When you were in the midst and the thick of it, and I think this would be true for a lot of women, how, how you were happy? How did you, how did you go a, sort of unconscious in terms of, I'm not tending to these things? Was the career just so much that you just didn't even have to think? Like, how did you do that? Well, I lean into what I'm good at. Yeah. Instead of developing the other areas of my life, I'm not so good at. And, I, I, and believe me, as you know, Marjorie, when you're working for Oprah, uh, it, it pretty much is all the validation you're ever going to need in your life. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's just like she's my middle name was she's so busy. But as long <laughs> as I was working for Oprah, nobody cared. Yeah. You know, like I was the canceler last minute. We'll see if I can make it. Don't count on me. I'm not sure. And but as long as I was working for Oprah, I really got the big, huge pass on that. And I would say that. I, I, I didn't, I guess I am ambitious, but I didn't feel like an ambitious person. I wasn't looking to get promoted. Nobody was more shocked than me when she named me executive producer. I couldn't even believe it. Really? I was like, I was like, what? Why? <laughs> and there was, a, there was a big room full of people. And later someone said, you know, when you get promoted, you really shouldn't do that. I go, well, I just, that's how I feel. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't even know why she's picking me. It made no sense. And Marjorie, you were there, so you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I came up from promos. Yeah. It was like never the twain shall meet, yeah. the show people it's, and the promo people. It's true. So, Sherry, you have this epic career, and you have what everybody would consider a dream career. I mean, if you work in television and you're working for Oprah, it's as good as it gets, right? I mean, this is yeah. just the way that it is. And for for type A people like you and Marjorie who produ- who are producers, this is like also as good as it gets. So I want to know in that moment, and you describe this in the book so beautifully where you talk about the point where you leave 
own and you're figuring out what your next step is. And was it just a feeling of, oh boy, what did I do? Because that was what I put all my energy into. And now what do I have left? Here's what I knew. I knew it was a big reckoning. I knew I knew I had I had kind of figured it out for myself. All right. So here you're 56. What if this is the middle of your life? And if this is the middle of your life, are your glory days behind you and whatever you've manifested and created so far, that's all you get? Or is it, is this the opportunity to kind of go back, turn, get that, that dreaming muscle honed and really start to think about what are the dreams for every area of my life, in, including creativity, mm-hmm. including quote unquote work. And, that, you know, that opportunity to, to read, to take a look at it when, when I have a solid spiritual foundation where I have all this life experience, I found it to be incredibly inspiring and, and uplifting and empowering. And, 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 and the, the key to that was I, I had to fire that voice in my head that is, that followed me for years, that is harsh and critical and yep. you're not enough of this. And you didn't do that right. Yeah. And you should have. Yeah. And, and you should have. I had to fire that voice. And I had to excavate this, this tender persona that is a part of me. That the tenderest, most compassionate part of me that I would speak to any friend who was down or, or needed a lift. And that's the voice I had to bring in to say, let's take a look at what we have here. Love life, uh, health and wellness, the rest of your relationships where you want to live, what kind of work do you want to do with, with the tenderest, most compassionate eye. And then once I was really clear on where I was at, what I, what I really dreamed of, what was the life of my dreams? What is my personal recipe for a joy ride? And I, I have to tell you, ever since I was able to begin that process, I have never been happier. I've never felt more fulfilled. I've never felt more on fire creatively. Like, I could tell you now, it's not perfect. It's two steps forward, one step back, next, next step, one step forward. Mm-hmm. But I can feel that I'm, I'm on to something big for myself. Well, here's the interesting thing. In reading the book and talking about bringing forward that tender voice, it made me sad in this way. Your voice in my late 20s was one of the most tender voices around me at that time in my life. So, Cherry, you were giving that to other people that you were working with, but not giving it to yourself. And isn't that the greatest lesson? We are so much nicer to other people people. than we are to ourselves. What is happening here? Which which honestly, I think, oh my gosh, I'm so glad Sherry's getting that tender voice from Sherry that I got all those years because it was fabulous. I mean, your tender voice is wonderful. But I think, too, the other interesting thing you said in trying to have this reckoning and going through the process... You went to a place called We Care, and I loved that Renee said to you, this is one of the one of the healers there, had said to you that she made you sort of stand up and do this exercise. And it's a great chapter if you get the book. It's a great chapter about you being sort of all like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And then just sort of leaning into it and trying to let it wash over you. But the healer said to you, you need to stand up. And she said, that is the past. None of it is real anymore. Not even the glorious stuff. Not even the top of the mountain career stuff. Are you willing to let go all of that and walk through the new door that you drew for you yourself yesterday? So you'd drawn a picture of what you wanted in your life. And that 
I think speaks to so many people at the middle of life is whether it's been a really difficult time getting to the middle of life or a glorious one, both of those can paralyze you and not let you have the next 30 years. And I think that that's such a great message for women in particular, women maybe who have stayed home and taken care of their families and then their kids go off. They have to let all that go, that person that they were and find the new person. And it's that idea of finding that dream muscle again. How sad is it that we let that atrophy and finding that again and saying, okay, nobody can limit what I can do next. I may have been a mom for 30 years. My kids don't need me in the same way. I can be something completely different. I can build a company like you're doing. I think it's very inspirational and so important for women in particular. Well, one of the big epiphanies that I had was, and, and this kind of, I don't have human children, so, but this kind of, this kind of puts uh, all of the sisterhood in, inside this, this, this revelation I had, which is being someone else's something, the labels that we've inhabited for most of our lives, because it's a label inhabiting kind of life. Yeah. Somebody's mother, somebody's daughter, somebody's partner, uh, somebody's employee. Yeah. Even if it's a dream job, somebody's employee. It doesn't a full life make. Yeah. Being somebody else's something is not a full life. And being your own something, your own something where, where all these different roles are just kind of the details of your grand play. This is the movie of my life. I'll, I'm going to curate my experience. I'm going to pay attention and focus on what I, I allow, allow into my life. That's an interesting thing that, and I think it is, I think it's women of, uh, of the middle of lifetime. I think we have to be really super aware that in many cases, we were raised to be of service first. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and being of service is really great. But it only works when your own cup is full and you're spilling it out, spilling out the extra and the abundance. It's, it's definitely a thing, a thing worth looking at. And now's the time. Now's the time where we can kind of recalibrate and, and, and recast. And still, it's, it's just not too late. That's really my message here. I think it's that my message, message to myself, too. Yeah, it's such a it is so inspiring. There was a point when you talked about really early on in the book about even how that idea of what a woman's worth is till a certain age is so drilled into us in terms of media in just the rating system. So when you talked about, you know, kind of the inside baseball of media, which is that advertisers care about the 25 to 54 female demographic. And when you hit 54, advertisers don't care anymore. And so we're not programming for that anymore. And I think that's the most archaic view because we are at a time when women 54 and older, I mean, my mom is in her mid 60s. She is running multiple companies and having her best business time ever and has this whole amazing life. And I'm thinking, how can women like that not be considered? I mean, this is the prime. This is the time when you are your most, your, you oh know, God. you can be your most productive. Yes, and you have money and you have no children at home that you have to spend it on. You know, Sherry, one thing that I really related to, and I love that conversation about filling your own cup and here on Best to the Nest, we're really even looking at that from even almost a little bit of a bigger picture, which is filling the cup of your home first and having that spill over into the community and what that can mean for our neighborhoods and our and just our culture in general. And the 
interesting thing when you talk about where your worth came from for so long, and I personally relate to this so much, and I know Marjorie relates to this too. You said in the book at one point, as I examine it now, clearly my life was ruled by a misguided belief that my absolute value and worth as a human being was directly tied to achievement, to getting the gold star. I alone wasn't enough. And that feeling of not (sighs) being enough is something that plagues so many of us. And I think in a time when women have really been raised to say, particularly my generation, you can have it all. You can have everything. Mm -mm. You can do it all. Then when you realize I am, I do not have enough to do it all. This is... (laughs) It's killing me. It's killing me. It's killing me to do it all. And then you get to the point where you've been raised to feel that your achievement or you feel that achievement is where your worth is. And then you realize you can't achieve it all. I mean, Sherry, it's like a real kick in the gut, like a physical kick in the gut. Well, and I think that's what happens when when we're allowing external forces to, to bind what having it all means. I do believe we can have it all. But first, we have to do that really deep work. It's putting ourselves first no matter what. No matter what, if you have kids, if you're working 70 hours a day, you must come first. It's like real, really recasting that whole misguided notion of selfishness because your, your happiness is your responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, and, and happy people can sit down and think about what does having it all mean, mean to me? It means having an integrated life. It means that I have a regular spiritual practice. It means that I take care of my health and wellness. It means that I am, I have, I have boundaries in my relationships with other people and that my, my creative cup is full, that I feel like I'm innovating. I feel like I'm contributing. There's a very, a much, much healthier way to define what having it all means. But I don't think you can get to that place unless you're in complete alignment with yourself. That's a hundred percent true. That is, that might be one of the most valuable things anybody's ever said, because you have to define for yourself what having it all means. And that's really much harder to do than it sounds. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, okay, so let's, let's for, for the sake of our conversation, let's say we're going to decide it's an easy thing to do. <laughs> and, 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 and here's why, because I think this story really, really matters. We never can quite accomplish things that are, that are super hard. And I think maybe it's just kind of like what, and, and, and it's, and it's a little baby steps because here's the other way I've self-sabotaged for most of my life, which was to make the goal so outrageously huge that it was absolutely <laughs> unlikely I was going to achieve it. Yes. And, and then be like, oh, well, I guess that's not going to happen. And then under, but underlying all that is I'm teaching myself. I can't trust myself. So, so I would say if, you know, First of all, how do you do this? How do you begin to see this differently? The, the key step is begin. Yes. And number two, number two, I think it is just like 10 minutes a day carving out a little daydreaming time. No goals, no papers, no notebooks. Oh, my God, I did that for years, too. But just a little daydreaming, a little daydreaming like what is the life of my dreams? And kind of see what comes up. What is the life of my dreams? in relationships? What is the life of my dreams in professionally? What is the life of my dreams in terms of the sanctuary, the home I'm creating? And, and without limit, 
without limiting, without being like, but that's not possible. Like just really staying kind of pure in that daydreaming space and then just set it down because what you're doing is you're beginning to just stir the, po- the, the hopeful possibilities. And I think that's a great way to begin to do exactly what I'm talking about. I think so too. And I think what's really important is if you feel stuck or if you're unhappy, that you have to address that at some point. And I think that's what's so compelling about the book is that you understand, I mean, when you start to un, sort of untangle your life, as we all should, into sort of separate categories and say, where am I sort of, where do I have a handle on it and where don't I so that I can balance those two things? And in a way, that's the real work is, is there a relationship you need to tend to? Is there all of those things that you have to look at? Is there, is it spirituality I have to attend to? And it is and can be hard work, but when you start to do it, it can make, it can make your life unfold in ways that you would never expect. You talk in the book too about feeling held back by your body and you're, I mean, you're super upfront and honest and open about a struggle with weight, which so many of us deal with and have dealt with and feel like you're failing at all the time. And you you really embrace this idea about exercise that I think has been a real game changer for me and I think can be a game changer for other people. Not that I'm sticking to it every day, but when you write in the book about movement, that it's not just a means to an end, a penance to be paid for a perfect body. Movement is a privilege, a joy, even a kind of miracle is really a great way to look at things. And I know that's really changed your everyday life of just looking at getting to move your body as something that's a privilege, not something that you have to do. So how is that being integrated into your life? Well, I mean, again, I go back to when, when, I, when I was totally all or nothing, I usually ended up with nothing. Yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah. I try to make it. That's good. I, I just try to weave a little thing in, like a little 15 minutes next to my bed in my son's salutations. Now I have a yoga practice. I do um, uh, work with a trainer in, in Napa Valley who is probably young enough to be my granddaughter. Uh, but she, she's really great, and she's very inspiring, and it's not crazy meant. You know, we do weights and some things like that. I've started incorporating, and, and I'm, I, I think this is going to be a good practice for a lot of the pillars of my life, that, that before or after dinner walk. Oh. Yes. I, <laughs> I know. Doesn't it sound delicious? I know. We've been, <laughs> we've been doing that at our house. We have a new uh, shiny double stroller happening at our house, which has been a game changer. Oh, but look at how we all decide. It's like, oh. It just sounds so nice. And I mean, everything that you're saying when you're describing your workout sounds so nice. And I, that's the switch for me is that feeling. And this happened to me as soon as I had my first child is I realized I am no longer after like the beat up business of getting pregnant and delivering a child. I was no longer in the business of beating up my body to work it out. It just was never going to happen again. (laughs) I'm just not that person. And I am okay with that. And it it has to be if there's movement that's incorporated into my life, it has to be about relaxation, about a meditation, about kind of just that getting more in touch with your body, not this booming bass and yelling instructor at the front of a class trying to just beat you down. I mean, it, and that to me just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Well, there's a, there's a yoga studio and I won't name it where I'm at a class, you know, it's a 45, 50 minute class and the music is not my taste. And this is where I felt all of my 50, you know, five years old. It was not my taste at all. And it's pounding so obnoxiously. 
and they're in and they're telling me that I'm in yoga. <laughs> this has nothing to do with yoga. Not anything. The lyrics were slightly offensive to me. I was like, what the hell am I doing? This is all wrong. So I that's why I think when you say an evening you know, an evening walk, that seems lovely and that seems integrated and that seems like the right thing to just keep us in the kind of shape that we need to be in. I never had I never had a perfect body. I never will either. So I don't even know like doing a 50 minute class at 110 degrees. I don't know what I'm thinking. <laughs> that is so funny. I totally understand that. You know I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's the There's truth. a wonderful chapter in the book about you going to an exercise class which I very much identified with. Well, Sherry, it's just so it's been so interesting and I think following your career and then reading this book and that There were a couple real takeaways. I mean, it is that idea that you can have a life that you want or what you think you want for a long time and you can neglect other parts of yourself. And then the second thing is really that at any point in your life, you can have that reckoning and you can make those decisions. You know, I was telling Marjorie the other day that I went and did a story for um, my TV show on this little quilting shop in this little town in Minnesota. And I just met this woman and did this cute story on her quilting shop. And she told me, I said, well, did you always want to be a quilter? How long have you had this shop? And she said, well, I was a dental hygienist for 25 years and it was a nice job and I liked the people and it worked really well for when my kids were little. And she said, but I always had this creativity inside of me and I wanted to do something where I got to experience creativity and I got to help other people experience creativity. And so I decided to have this quilting shop. And I just thought, you know, she just said it so matter of fact, such in such a Minnesotan way. This is just what I decided to do. And I thought, you are fabulous. This is wonderful. Wonderful, because it's so easy to define yourself by what you've done for such a long time and think I can't do something different. And so whatever level you're at, if you're a dental hygienist or if you're executive producing for Oprah, you can make that decision at any time. And that's right. And I think that the message for, for all of us in our 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond is that it's never too late to live the life of your dreams. And if not now, when? That, that's what resonates in my ear. If not now, when, Sherry? And that's when, when I'm tempted to, to kind of, kind of lapse into my old pattern. If not now, when? If not now, when? If not now, when? Because when I'm 98, I want to look back at the 56 year old me and say, wow, that is so amazing that you were willing to stop, take a look at your lifescape, reboot, and, and really co- begin to tweak your recipe. So you could live the life of your dreams. Yeah, I love that. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. What a joy. What a joy that the world is now seeing the tenderness that I got to experience in my 20s. I'm so grateful for that. It's wonderful. Thank you so much, Sherry. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me on. I so appreciate a a chat with with smart women who are doing amazing things. That was really fun. Oh, you're great, Sherry. Thank you. Take care. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. I think the real beauty about our conversations, Marjorie, and we talked about this a lot on our radio show and now now here on our podcast, is the different stages that we are in life. You know, your kids have left the nest. Mine are just making the nest a mess all the time. They're just constantly (laughs) 
throwing things and tossing things. And well, I just I thought I just picked this up. What's happening here? Right. But when I talk to women like you and when I talk to Sherry, I feel this just genuine passion for making things better for those who are coming behind you. And yeah. all of these conversations make me so hopeful where I feel like, oh, my gosh, this is what I have to come is even better than what I have now. Yeah. And it makes me feel a lot more in control and empowered at a time in my life where I don't feel that in control because I have two little dictators running the show at home. So it's great to hear. That's such an important thing to me as well, because I look back at sort of the swirl of my 20s and 30s, and I wish that I had had the energy and the foresight and the wisdom at that age to be able to look at my life exactly where I was, where I was standing in that moment, and make choices with more intention. I can't have huge regrets. I, I really, I, I don't in that way, and that's not what I'm saying. I mean, I'm grateful for my life. But I think what this book and what these conversations can do is for people like you that are in the thick of it. It's just that voice that says, think about this. Just think about this. And and it's so easy to not. It's so easy to let the busy cloud out all of those other things that are important. And I, I that's my hope for, for what we talk about. It's interesting. I'm looking for my in through my notes. And Sherry, there's a chapter in the book about her and her 20s. And it was pretty powerful to me. And I thought... I would give this book to somebody in their 20s or to a new mother and highlight those sections just so that they could slow down. I'm trying to find it. Hold on one second. So she says, feeling awful. This is it. The chapter was, I did everything wrong and it turned out all right. She said, feeling awful was my only trigger to make a change. I had unwittingly made misery my compass. It made my 20s a bit of a shit show. That's really hard for me to say. <laughs> That's okay. You can say it. You can swear on a podcast. It's very weird in front of a microphone. Doesn't it's, it giving, feel great? it's giving me a little angst, actually. Freedom! <laughs> she said, I would sit in a pot like a lobster, not acknowledging my skin was turning red until I was pretty much cooked alive. And I think that that's such an interesting, and of course, she's looking back from a 50-year-old, 56-year-old perspective to her 20-somethings, but we don't have to make misery our compass. We don't have to make the change because everything's just so bad. And I think sometimes when marriages are in trouble or you're not getting along with your kids, attend to it. Attend to it before it all falls apart. And I know that sounds so extreme and so drastic, but you know exactly what I'm talking about, yeah. Elizabeth, no, we can look so around and see people are like, what are you doing? Well, you can see the warning signs. I mean, you feel the warning signs yeah. in your own body. And like Sherry was saying that it was so easy to live in the unconscious to just kind of move past those things and ignore those little warning bells, essentially. I mean, I feel them before I melt. And I can tell oh. when a melt is coming and I'm doing my hardest work to try to prevent the melt from coming. I mean, this sounds so silly, but this was even just a few weeks ago when I was dealing with all of these decisions with the kitchen. Yep. And I said, I have got to take a day off from work and I have to make these decisions on a day off because I can't do this and it's going to crush me and right. it is going to, I am going to be curled up in a ball crying. I mean, that is what was going to happen. Right. And I said to my executive producer of my show, I said, I have to take a day off next week. <laughs> he said, did you say it with that kind Just of like that. He said, okay, what day? I said, what day is the best day? And he was like, well, Thursday looks good. And I said, okay, I am taking Thursday off. I mean, that is the oh. point that I was getting to because I was feeling crushed under the weight right. of 
everything. And I couldn't do it. And so I knew that something had to give, you know, and I know sometimes when we have these conversations, it's easy to feel like that's a luxury where, you know, Sherry has a a beautiful life. I mean, and she was financially rewarded for all of the hard work that she did. And now she has that freedom to make some decisions. And I know that I have advantages that other people don't have, but it's important to like look relatively at what your life is and what you can, what can give before you crack? What can you just let go of or stop for a second before you completely end up in a ball and having a meltdown? Because it's a lot easier to then stay on track than it is to recover from a full out breakdown. Well, and I think money aside, and I don't say that lightly, we can always order our own thoughts. That is the one thing that we can do. And there is, if if you cannot do it by yourself, there are lots of, there's a library and there are books that can help you do it. There are therapists that you can see that will adjust what they charge according to what you make. And I think that that's the one thing that's interesting about her book is so much of it is about how we order our thoughts and how we look at our lives. And it is really interesting when she just talks about the perspective shift of how you talk to yourself in in something as basic as a workout. Look at the difference in how, oh my gosh, I have to work out today or I'm so grateful I can work out today. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it is the beginning just and I'm I'm telling you too to, to anybody that's listening when you can get your thoughts in order when you can get yourself in order money will come money will come because you'll be the person out in the world that somebody will want to hire you'll be the person that somebody wants to be around and so I, I do think and I don't say this lightly because I've had a pretty scrambled brain in times in my life it's just about getting those thoughts back in order well you, you certainly know? have a much better shot at success if you've got if you have your own stuff worked through I mean yeah. that is 100% and it's hard to do <laughs> true and if all else fails you guys take a walk before dinner or after dinner and there you go feel a little bit better all right there if you're you enjoying go. this podcast please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share it with a friend. And if you have a moment, give us a review at Apple Podcasts. Big thanks to Newbie to the show who says, I am loving Best to the Nest. I would especially recommend this podcast to busy moms wanting to live their best life. And I love that she says live their best life because that that little phrase... That began with Oprah. There you go. <laughs> and please reach out to us. You can find us both on Instagram at Best of the Nest or at Eliz Reese and at It's Me Marjorie One. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. What, what fun, Elizabeth. A little reunion. I a little love reunion it. for me. It's a joy. All right. Until next time. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>